Jesus, I recognize that I feel nervous this morning and await. And I believe that's because what we unpack today is so close to your heart because it's how you've made us. And so, Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would illuminate your word, that you would speak to our hearts and our minds so that we would know how deeply loved we are and what kind of freedom you bring to our life. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the redemption that's found there. Would you have your way today? We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Now, I I recognize this series that we have been going through vices has been complicated. (laughs) Um, It's been complicated. So far, we've tackled pride. We've tackled envy, vainglory. Last week, we tackled greed. And I I know it's been pretty heavy for many of us. And believe me, I have felt that too uh, from the stage and all week in preparation. And I want to make sure that you know as we kind of unpack these vices together If we go through it and you're like, oh my gosh, I struggle with that. Yes, welcome to humanity. We all struggle with these things at different times, okay? Uh, What you're really going to be looking for throughout the series is maybe the two or three that you're thinking, these are not just every now and then vices in my life that I struggle with, but these are the ones that seem to be part of my maybe personality or character that are deeply ingrained that I've got to figure out how to loosen because, man, do they have a hold on me. So don't go looking to make all seven vices your biggest issues. Does that make sense? Okay. I just want to make sure that you know that. So um, it looks like, you know, we're, the kids are kind of out. We're good to go here. So, um, you know, in my time as a pastor, I have come to realize that most couples, married or not, have their fair share of fights. This is an amen moment. Okay, there we go, right? Right? And I would say that a majority of fights are over two topics. These are the two most fought about things. Any idea what they are? Money and sex. Money and sex. It's so funny. The two biggest things that we fight about as couples, as people, are money and sex. And so last week we tackled greed and we talked about money and possession. So this week, let's talk about the vice of lust. Let's just keep going with it, right? Specifically as it pertains to sexuality, we're going to be looking at this. Uh, if, if you're coming back to Crossbridge or you're new to Crossbridge, welcome to Crossbridge. <laughs> um, I know. Can I tell you, though, this is honestly one of the reasons I am absolutely in love with Crossbridge and our churches because there's nothing off limits here. There's nothing off limits for us to talk about as long as it's grounded in what the Bible actually says and not just what we want it to say. So we're going to always kind of go back to this. And, and I know that we can lust for power, we can lust for money, uh, but pride and greed really covered some of those. And when these vices were originally being kind of organized the way that they were, uh, they used two different words to talk about uh, this, this word that we use for lust. And the two words that they used was a Greek word called porneia and a Latin word, uh, and, and it was fornicatio. And I don't really need to, if you have uh, any sort of like porneia and fornicatio, you can take that to whatever degree you understand that. But it almost always had to do with our sexuality. It had to do with sex and our sexual, uh, sexual vice. Now, let me just say up front that I understand that how this topic has been handled or not handled in many churches has been difficult. 
Um, we talk about this stuff at Crossbridge, and as we talk about this, I'm going to tell you, I will probably not answer some of the more divisive questions that you have when it comes to sexuality. If you're looking for me to say, but, listen, I have my opinions, and I believe that they are grounded in Scripture, but today isn't about figuring out all the details when it comes to our sexuality simply because I know conversations about sex and sexuality are deeply, deeply wrapped into our identity. They really have a lot to kind of press in on our hearts. So when it comes to, com to having conversations about sex or sexuality, I really do think they should be handled with prayer, with care, with discernment, because this topic alone could be a very polarizing topic. Amen? You know what I'm saying here. If you've been to a church, this could be highly, highly divisive. And our conversations and questions, I, I, it gets confusing and complicated in the world that we live in. It just does. I mean, think about it for a second. When it comes to sex, does, does sex mean everything? Is it sacred? Is it sinful? Is it something in between? Um, is it for procreation? Is it for physical intimacy? Is it for physical pleasure? Why is it so taboo to talk about sex? Why is it so commonplace, though, that we see it on every streaming service and billboard throughout our entire day? I mean, needless to say, both the culture and the church send very mixed messages about church. We just do. And we all grew up in very different homes when it came to talking about sex and, and how our parents talked about it, how the churches that we grew up talked about it, just for a second, think, how did your parents talk about sex in your home? Or did they? If they didn't, did they just avoid it like the plague and, and not want to have that conversation? And so they just kind of shuffled you off to school because they'll let you learn it there and, and that'll be fine. Did your friends talk about it? How did they talk about it? Did your church talk about sex? With every conversation that we have or lack of conversation that we have, our view of sex and sexuality is being formed in us. And so let's just be real. We're all coming from completely different places today, aren't we? When it comes to this topic, we're all coming from a completely different place, right? And that makes my job super easy this morning. But to be honest, it, it actually, it, it does. It does because I don't think most of us have ever really received a holistic biblical teaching on this topic. I do not think that we have talked about this well. And the teaching that we have received, it usually falls into one of two um, areas. And I like the way that Christopher West, he's an author, he, he writes that there are basically two, uh, he uses two images, two diets that we can ascribe to that help form. And I'd rather go with his uh, images because I just feel like they're so much better. The, the first one is we could be formed by the starvation diet, the starvation diet. Now, this is a diet that's usually found in the church, okay? This is found in the church. It's marked by repression and suppression, right? Those are the two key words that you need to know with the starvation diet. In this diet, there's no space for um, emotional conversations, no emotional capacity whatsoever to talk about our bodies, our longings, our passions. There's no space to talk about our deep desire to be connected with others. 
And because there's so much shame wrapped up around our bodies and the conversation around sexuality, this shame begins to bubble up. What actually happens is we suppress this conversation. And inevitably, we repress it and then we starve. We starve. And when we starve, we then move to what anyone who's starving would do. We act out. If you suppress and you repress at some point in your life, you will act out, which is why I think there's so many secrets in the church. I think this is one of the reasons there's so many sexual secrets in the church. There's so many things that come to light when we're in church because I I, I just they bubble up, they pop up, and they're always a big thing because we don't have a good theology about our sexuality. We've not normalized things like talking about sex. Um, The way that Scripture talks about sex, we should be able to talk about sex the way that we talk about prayer. And you're like, what? That feels weird. Why? Why does that feel weird? Both are intimate connections with God and with each other, but we are so, we have this, this starvation diet, but because we've lacked it, we've suppressed it, we've repressed it, we act out. This is the starvation diet. And so this is found in the church, but on the other side of the spectrum, Christopher West describes what's called the fast food diet, okay? The fast food diet. This is a diet marked by reduction, all right? And what I mean by reduction uh, when I say that is that we say that all of our longings are to be met whenever we want, Right? Whatever we desire, all of our passions should be fulfilled in any way that we desire them to be fulfilled. And and so the culture asks, and they, they ask us, does it feel right? And we're like, yeah. They're like, great, go ahead and do that then. Go for it. Does it fulfill you? Yes. Then no problem. You should be able to do that. And in the fast food diet, you know what's missing? Discernment. There's no discernment in this diet. They are driven by passions and longings, not led by them. There's no discernment in this area. And so whether it's the starvation diet or or it's the fast food diet, both of these offer a very, very immature way of thinking about our sexuality and our bodies. I really do think that the culture's conversation around casual sex, it needs to more honestly acknowledge the power of sex and of human sexual desire. They need to acknowledge that this is a big deal. And the church's conversation around sex should start with the goodness of sex, the the virtuous desires that God has put in us, that it's a love and life-giving power and not just focus on its perversions and the prohibitions and what you can't do. God's invitation to us today is for us to reject the starvation diet, reject the fast food diet, and to live a a life that's marked by sexual wholeness. To live a life that's marked by sexual wholeness. This is God's desire, and it's his design for us. And I use those two words, desire and design, so uh, specifically, because I think back to the passage that Del uh, read for us from Genesis chapter 2. And in, in this passage that we read, what we have is the creator looking at Adam and seeing that it's not good for him to be alone, is it? So, so what does he do? 
Tell me, what does he do in Genesis chapter 2, which we just read? He sees that it's not good for Adam to be alone, so he... He doesn't make Eve. He makes animals. He's like, it's not good for man to be alone, so let's, let's make animals, right? Is this going to meet Adam's need to not be alone? No! Well, I, actually, I'm not sure. I mean, this right here is a... I'm not going to lie, this is a picture of Tino. I know. Look at his bow tie. That's my man. He's so awesome. He's pretty, we're pretty tight. That's like one of my best friends. We sit together. We read the Bible together. We pray together. Um, you know, he hangs out with me when I'm answering emails and texts and phone calls. He follows me all over. It's man's best friend, right? Not really. Not really. Not according to the creator. Adam, Adam saw all these animals come through and there was no helper just right for him. So God's desire for him is to be in union with someone. And when Adam, in this moment, is like, there's nothing out here that's like me. And so he gets the best heavenly anesthetic, is knocked out for, there is no definition of time here, and God creates out of his side this beautiful creation that is woman. And I, I just love I love the Bible sometimes. In verse 23, Adam's response is like my favorite thing here. He's like, uh, listen, look at those first two words. At last! Like, oh, yes. Whew. At last, the man exclaimed. This one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. Yes! Yes, I've got someone. Yes! He just looks at her and he knows this is it. Why? Because they were designed to fit perfectly together. And just in case we missed it, the author of Genesis makes it very, very clear in verse 24. He says, this explains why man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. God's desire and design for us is to come together, to become one. This is to fulfill the command that he actually gave Adam and Eve a chapter earlier in verse 28 when he says to them, then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, govern it. Let, let me just let that verse sit up there for a couple seconds. Read that a couple times to yourself. God's blessing is he created humans with sexual bodies capable of attraction, arousal, reproduction. Sex is about love and it's about life. God doesn't hide this, does he? Do you see what he did? He blessed it. He blessed it. Can you imagine how Adam and Eve felt about this? Could you just imagine that? I'll tell you how they felt. In verse 25 of chapter 2, it says, Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt, what is it? No shame. They felt no shame. We should view our sexualities, our bodies, our hormones, and the pleasures that go with them as a good gift from God. 
This is a moment where I'm going to say it again, and you can give me an amen here because this is a good one, okay? You ready? All right. We should view our sexuality, the bodies, our body, hormones, and the pleasures that go with them as a good gift from God. Oh, come on, man. This is, makes me sad for your sexual well-being and wholeness right now. This is something that God has blessed us with and wired into us, designed us with. We should view this, as we've talked about throughout this whole series, when we talk about vices, what vices are, are they are disordered desires of the good things that God has given us. And, and this love that Adam and Eve has, has no shame involved in it, right? And it is about to get seriously disordered. It's about to get super messed up. And, and if we jump to chapter three, where we started on week one, when we talked about pride being the root of all of these vices that we wrestle with, in this chapter, we find the serpent approaching Adam and Eve, convincing them to eat fruit from the tree of good and evil, really convincing them that God had withheld from them, right? So they need to eat this fruit to be like God. And so they eat it. And verse seven tells us that it says that at that moment, their eyes were open and suddenly what happened? Oh my gosh, God blessed them and their sexuality. They felt no shame. And now suddenly they felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Can you imagine this moment? I mean, what would it be like to feel shame for the first time? To look down at your own body that's been created by God, knit together Life has been breathed in and you look and say, this is wrong. This shouldn't be seen. This needs to be covered. That's shame. That's what shame does. It distorts our view and disorders our love for ourselves and for others. And there's more. In verse 8, it says, When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about the garden, so they hid from the Lord among the trees. And then the Lord called to them, Where are you? You see, shame doesn't just mess up our relationship with ourselves and with others. It messes up our relationship with God. When shame takes hold of our life, we'll try to hide from everyone and we try to hide from God. Shame isolates us and makes us question, am I really worthy of love? Can, can I be loved? What I love about this passage is God knows what's gone down. Right? He's not ignorant of the situation, and he simply asks, where are you? Where are you? He's inviting his creation that he loves, and that he knit together intentionally to be seen again. Do you see that? Where are you? You don't need to hide, because shame is not God's desire or design for us. And you need to hear that today. Shame is not God's desire or his design for any of us. But shame is exactly what every single one of us carry, especially when it comes to our sexuality. Whether you want to admit it or not, each and every one of us sits here as sexually broken people. We just do. A major part of, of who we are and how God created us is broken. 
Just like in Genesis 3, we carry this together. And lust, when we have to deal with this, is rooted in our desire to be fully loved and to be completely known by another human and by God. Does that make sense? This is where the root of our lust comes from because it's the way that he designed us and desires us. Lust is a weird thing because it usually begins as a sin of weakness, not a sin of malice. When we feel unloved, when we feel unseen, when we feel worthless, shame speaks up as the loudest voice, and and it speaks into our value and worth and begins to take it away. So if it's taking away that we feel like nothing, doesn't it make logical sense for us to seek something out that's going to make us feel loved, make us feel seen, and make us feel worthy? It makes logical sense. And, And lust steps up to the plate And instead of love, it places sex above love. You see, lust is not a problem because it wants too much from sex. Lust is a problem because it desires too little from sex. It can make sex all about me, what I get out of this. It's not about the other person in a committed relationship, a covenant relationship. Lust can imitate acts of intimacy But in reality, it is the exact opposite of it. We think it makes us feel more human. But just like every other addiction out there, if we successfully numb ourselves and we can objectify the other person, we will have also successfully become less fully human ourselves. We're almost always, when we engage in lustful thoughts and actions, We're almost always left feeling alone, don't we? Unfulfilled. You see, lust is a sexual desire that dishonors its object. It it disregards God. It's, It's sexual desire minus any commitment to another person. I I wish I heard that growing up. I do. I I wish I heard this in the church that I grew up in. In my church, sex wasn't really shamed when we talked about it, but it was kind of presented in a way where, um, like, you should avoid it like the plague before you were married, right? Suppress all of your sexual urges and pray to God that he takes them all away. But when you do get married, everything can be let loose, right? You can gratify every sexual desire you want, however you want. It was like, up till then, it was like poison. And then after, it was like, whatever, And I I feel like, to be honest with you, it felt like it cheapened sex because there was no mention of love, no mention of intimacy, respect, honor. It was still very physically based and it was completely rooted in fear. And so as a teenager, I'm just going to give you some insight into how dysfunctional your pastor is. Um, As a teenager, I sat there and here is my logic, all right? As long as I don't physically have sex, I'm pretty good to go, right? So, because what do we do really well? We try to find loopholes to everything. This is a good amen moment. You're there. I know you are. I've been with you. (laughs) In my brain, as long as I'm not physically acting out on this, I thought it's not a big deal if I'm thinking about it, as long as I don't do anything about it. I can think about it. 
I can let my mind go where it wants, but I just don't do anything about it and I'll be fine. And here's the truth. I know I'm not the only one who's ever thought this because I've had conversations with many of you and you've said those exact words to me and I grin thinking, oh, you're logical too. I get it. Lust is only a sin if it's acted out on, right? Well, here's the truth. Lust does not need to be acted out upon for it to be considered a disordered desire, okay? It doesn't need to be acted out on. Rebecca DeYoung, um, she wrote a book called Glittering Vices. And if you ever have the opportunity to get this book, it has been one of the most uh, amazing resources for this entire series for me. And I would highly suggest you go get it if you want to explore this more. And you'll probably be like, man, Jimmy really leaned in a lot on this. She's amazing, amazing. She's a doctor over at Calvin University and amazing. Um, So much inspired from her. But here's what she says. I love this. Lust is a problem with the heart above your belt before it's a problem with the heat below it. Come on, that's good, right? That's so good. That's so good. I love it when someone puts something in a way that I'm like, oh, I need to rewind that, listen to it again, get the book and underline it. Get Like, man, lust is a problem with the heart above your belt before it's a problem with the heat below it. Lust is so much more than acting out on our distorted or disordered desires that we have, right? We're so worried about what's happening below the belt that we fail to mention the origin of all of these issues is above the belt. And so here's why I love Jesus is because he doesn't forget that. And Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, in in Matthew chapter 5, he writes this when it comes to lust. He says, you've heard the commandment that says, you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. Now, I I absolutely love Jesus, and I wrestle with what he says, and this is one of those passages that I just wrestle with. Because... He reminds us that adultery, right? He, he brings that up in the culture that he's at, that having sex with someone else's spouse is wrong. We can agree to this, correct? Okay, some of you are a little scared right now. It's okay. We can all agree adultery is, is wrong, correct? Okay. Whew. Got me scared for a second here. And so Jesus takes what we all know and we would agree upon and he raises the bar a thousand times higher stating that if we lust after somebody, we've committed adultery not below our belt, above our belt, in our heart. And, and so I wonder, like, Jesus, how could that be true? That doesn't make any sense. But remember, each of us is created in the image of God. And the person that you allow your eyes and your thoughts to linger on is most likely not your spouse. They are a child of God, created in his image, worthy of love, honor, and respect. And when we devalue others in our minds and in our hearts, we have not loved God's creation And we have not loved ourselves because we've sold ourselves short of the intimacy that God has for us. Not only that, if we are 
in a covenant marriage relationship, we've given such an intimate part of who we are to someone else even in our minds. We have cheapened sex to some physical act to get what we want from another person without them even having to know that's what we did. It's kind of unnerving, isn't it? That person is an image bearer of God. They are someone's son or daughter. They are someone's husband or wife, mom or dad. They are someone's brother or sister. They have a name. They have a story just like you and just like me. How would you feel if someone looked at you or someone in your family and they let their eyes linger and their minds wander? If you knew what they were thinking, how would you feel? So when we say it's not a big deal as long as I don't act out on it, can we just call it what it is that that's a lie to ourselves? That that's just trying to justify a behavior that we really want to have, but we know God has not said, this is what's ideal for your life. Evagrius, uh, we talked about him week one. He was one of those desert fathers who went off into Egypt, and he's the one who originally came up with these uh, vices and put them together as like eight thoughts. When he was organizing them uh, in his uh, kind of like big thing called practicos, uh, he says this, to the extent that it is easier to sin in thought than in action, so is the warfare in thought more difficult than that which is conducted through objects. For the mind is a thing easily set in motion and difficult to check in its tendency toward unlawful fantasies. I I just think it's so cool what he's like. The warfare on a physical side might be easier than the warfare on a mental side. Do Do you ever feel that? I feel that all the time. The mental battles are much harder than the physical battles, and it doesn't take much to get our minds going, does it? And today, we are bombarded with enough suggestions, like he says, that, man, our our minds are going almost before we are leaving our homes. If we check our phones first thing in the morning and you open that, you're already being hit. Lust can certainly feel like it's delivering on this instant pleasure that, that, oh, I feel loved and great. I mean, if it didn't feel like that, why else would we continue to go back to it? Why else would we keep going back to this? But it doesn't just deliver falsely on this instant pleasure. It delivers on disrespect. It delivers shame to our door. And that shame is heaped on us and on others. This is why I love the request that the woman at the end of Song of Songs um, has. And if you've never read the book of uh, the Song of Songs, it's a great Hebrew poem found in the Old Testament uh, about a man and a woman's uh, just excitement to get married. And it's a very, very sexually intimate book. It's a beautiful, beautiful book to read. And uh, the poetry is stunning in it. And near the end, there's been no hiding how, desire, how their desire for each other is. No hiding it. They are excited to be together and be married. But in chapter 8, uh, verse 4, this is the request the woman makes to her friends. She says, promise me, O women of Jerusalem, not to awaken love until the time is right. 
She recognizes in this, right, there is a time that love can come to its fullest expression. And it's in the context of her soon-to-be marriage. But man, right now, it's a battle. It is a battle because all I want to do is be with him. And so she turns to her ladies and she's like, girls, you got to help me because he's something special. Mm -hmm. Look at him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You got to help me make sure that my love for him does not awaken to its fullness until it's due time when we're married. She's not praying for God to take it away. Why? Because she's embracing this part of who she is. She's longing for it to be expressed in an appropriate, beautiful way. She's practicing something that we only joke about in our culture. Something called chastity. Chastity. Usually this idea that we have of chastity is something that is mocked by everyone. It's targeted straight at people who aren't married yet. Uh, You know, listen... This is not just about not having sex. That's not what what chastity is. Chastity is about our wholeness, our completeness. It puts desire and love and design in the proper place so that we can enjoy the authentic relationship that God has designed for us to find intimacy, to experience a greater joy. Chastity is a lifelong practice that applies to every single one of us. Every single one of us, married, single, it does not matter. We need collectively to guard our minds, to guard our hearts, to guard our hands, as Jesus says, to make sure that we're honoring God, that we're honoring how he's created us, and that we're honoring those that he's created. Does that make sense? That's what this is all about. Now, if lust is the vice that you feel like, man, this just has me. Pastor Jimmy, this one is the one that I just battle with. And please hear me so clear on this. If anyone ever tells you this goes away if you get married and and just, you know, that is the biggest load of crap you're ever going to hear. Because lust is not about sex. Lust is about a disordered desire to feel loved. And so we make it happen ourselves. And if you're in a marriage or a committed relationship, you know there are times you could feel left aside, correct? Lust is not just a singles person thing. This is a human thing. And that's why it needs to be addressed collectively. So if this is your battle and you want to begin to loosen the vice to figure out how in the world can I take this This may be your lifelong battle, just so you know. It just may be. But there are some things you can set in place in your life that I believe will help you when it comes to battling. And here's how to fight it. The first thing I would suggest to you is this. Set boundaries. (laughs) I know that seems so simple, doesn't it? Right, just set boundaries. Um, You gotta figure out when to avoid things. When is it that you're most vulnerable? Don't expect our culture to change anytime soon. And don't, you know, moan about, oh, it's not fair, our culture is so this, our culture is so that. Don't do that. It's not going to change. So stop complaining about them and start doing something in your own life. You need to set your boundaries. You have to make the difficult calls in your life because no one else is going to do this for you. 
right? You need to figure out when is it that you're most vulnerable. Is it late at night? Is it early in the morning? Is it when you're home when no one else is? You know, is it when you're at the gym? Is it when you're at, you know, out running? When is it? Your battle may look different than mine. So you need to set your own boundaries. And, and, and let me tell you something about lust. Lust grows really fast in the Garden of Leisure. Lust grows real fast in the Garden of Leisure. If you're sitting around doing nothing, you're about to be up to something no good. And I'm not saying that means we should busy ourselves with like all sorts. Like, I'm saying that sometimes you do need to get out of a situation. If you've got nothing to do and it's 1.30 in the morning, you're about to do something no good. Nothing good happens that late at night. Nothing good happens when you are alone. So you have to know what your boundaries are. Set them. And when you feel temptation is about to come, go do something else. <laughs> go do something else. You need to, to set boundaries for yourself as if you were your own parent. Like, really, Jimmy? Yeah, I do that. I parent myself like I'm still 13. I do. I have boundaries set on my phone. I keep it with limits that are set up. I do not have it upstairs with me ever. I keep it in, you know, charging downstairs away from me. So if you're like, oh, you never got back to me. Yeah, it's because I don't want my tech near me at night. It's a boundary I've set up for myself. Why? It's when I'm most vulnerable. And that makes me completely okay. I'm taking temptation out. You need to set boundaries for yourself as if you were 13. And let me tell you, if you have teenagers in your home or you have someone who has a cell phone in your home that you are responsible for, if you do not have boundaries set up on their phone, you are in deep trouble. And if you're a teen right now going, I don't have that, like, why are you saying that? Because you need help. You will not naturally do this on your own. This is our responsibility as parents, amen? And if you're like, oh my gosh, you know, they complain to you that, no, my other friends don't have this. You can say, no, there's other parents at Crossbridge that do it. We all have to do it together. Look, and if we don't do it together, they're just going to complain. So we need to do this together, okay? We need each other here. Amen. The second step I would give for you after you set boundaries is to be honest. All right? You have to be honest with you. Lust thrives in privacy and in isolation, right? That's what it does. That's what uh, it drives us to that place. We know that lust brings shame and shame motivates us to keep our struggles hidden from others. That's why Adam and Eve, right after they felt shame, they covered and hid. And that's what shame does. So this is why, here's how you fight lust, is is you got to be honest and you got to do this in community, in openness, with accountability. Sheer individual willpower will not work in this battle. It just will not work. You cannot beat this vice alone. So stop hiding. Stop it, because what normally happens is those who struggle with lust the most are usually the ones who want the most help because we know how it leaves us feeling. And we don't want that, but we're so ashamed that if people really knew how bad it was, and it's like, I'm telling you, as your pastor, it's bad all over. You need help, and it's going to come from each other. Don't hide. And let me tell you, if you ever find yourself in a place where you're hesitant to tell your spouse something, this should set off alarms. It should send off flares. You should be freaking out if you're thinking, do I tell my spouse about this or not? Because this includes, I'm talking like every side conversation that you have with someone on social media or text. You're like, mm, I, I just don't want them to know about that one. Like, yeah. 
Maybe it's only pornography every once in a while. And I'm not going to say like, oh, that's a man's issue. It's not. That's a, a male and female issue across our country right now. That's only once in a while. They don't need to know. You know, that longer dog walk that you take and maybe to see that neighbor if they're out and maybe have that conversation. If you keep secrets, you'll lie to not be found out. If you keep secrets, you will lie to not be found out, and this will kill your relationships. So you need to be honest if you want to get this vice removed from your life. And finally, the last thing that I would suggest is you need to remember reality. And it's a little weird. Remember reality. It's very easy to objectify instead of humanize people. It's the easy road to take in lust is to make someone an object, and you need to remember that humans are always greater than objects. Humans are in God's creation, not objects. A couple of years ago, when I had uh, the dad duty of bringing my kids down to the bus stop every day, uh, our neighborhood was unique, and there was a lot of dads who brought their kids down, and so it was always fun, and we would chit-chat afterwards. And uh, I, I do my best in my neighborhood. I, when I walk my dog, I pray for our neighbors all the time. And I'm always trying to meet them. And uh, I, I love my townhome community so much. And we always have people moving in and out. So I'm always meeting new people. And while we were down there one day, all the guys started, uh, we'll just call it locker room talk. That's been normalized in our culture, that phrase, right? So they start saying things that uh, they probably should not have been saying, and they begin to talk about a new woman who had walked in, or or moved into our neighborhood, and they noted this about her, and that about her, and this would be fun with her, or can you imagine that? And I kind of did that thing, and they're like, oh, Jimmy's here. And, And they do that a lot because they turned to me and went, what? And I said, oh, are you talking about? And I mentioned her name. And they're like, that's her name? I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Her family just moved in. Their kids are about the same age as our kids. So I'm sure we're going to see her down here with us. And and I'm sure our kids are going to be playing together. She she works right now as this. And and I met her the other day when I was taking Tino. We are best friends, right? Going out for a walk. Is oh, Jimmy, you ruin everything like this. You ruin you, like, Why can't you just let us have that? Because she doesn't deserve that. She's not an object. She's a person made in God's image, not to be objectified. If you find yourself down a road of objectifying someone, you need to remember that is a human created in the image of God, just like you are. You are worthy of love. You are worthy of forgiveness. And you are worthy of receiving great and good gifts from God. So are they. And you are robbing them and robbing yourselves when you make them an object. When you make them something to give you what you want without ever letting them know. We need to see people as people. Amen? Humans are not objects. And in his book, Divine Conspiracy, Dallas Willard says this, sexual harassment as we know it would simply disappear under Jesus' ethic of sexuality. Could you imagine a world like that? No more Me Too movements. No more scandals inside and outside the church. No more because we have guarded the heat above the belt, which has led to a healthy, holistic 
view of our bodies and our sexuality. But because we're all sexually broken and wounded, I understand that there's so much pain. I understand there's shame. just feel like in this moment that there are some of you right now you're experiencing a shame that's not yours you're experiencing a shame because something that's been done to you and you keep thinking I can't keep going back to Jesus to ask for forgiveness I've asked too many times And I believe his word for you is, will you look up, child? Will you raise your eyes because shame has made you hide? He is not ashamed of you. He is not ashamed of your body or your sexuality. He loves you and wants to bless you. For some of you, I really feel there's something heavy that's sitting on you. And your battle with lust, it's killing you. And I need to tell you, this is a battle you cannot fight, but can be won through the power and the blood of Jesus Christ. I say that as someone who's not victorious over that battle, but who has found more victory in my life now than I ever have because of the freedom that Jesus brings. This is available for all of us if we're willing to submit to the ethic and the teaching of Jesus. And if you think, but I'll mess up again, okay, he'll forgive again. And every time he was met by an adulterous woman or hung hanging out with prostitutes because that's the houses that he went over. He never shamed them, but he always called them to something better. And so as we approach the communion table today, the table of our Lord Jesus Christ where we put him at the center, you will never find victory in this area of your life if you do not know Jesus. And so if you you don't know Jesus today, I want to give you an invitation to respond to him, to say, this is something that's been so heavy on my heart, and I feel like I'm banging my head against a wall, and I'm not getting anywhere. I, I want freedom, and I'm done fighting this battle alone. Would you help me fight this? I trust your teaching, and I trust, I trust you. For just a second, would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? If you have never submitted your life to the teaching of Jesus and and accepting him as your savior to do what you cannot do, and you want to do that today, I'm just going to ask very simply, if you would just raise your hand real quick, and and this way we can pray for you and follow up with you. Okay, wonderful. This is the prayer of your heart. Would you just pray with me? Jesus, I need you. I recognize that I've not loved myself and I've not loved others well. And I need you, Jesus, to forgive that sin so that I may love others, love you, receive your love. Would you forgive my sin? Would you help me to follow your teachings? Would you help me to love people well? 
Jesus, fill me with the Holy Spirit that I may have victory. It's in your name I pray, Jesus. Amen. As we approach communion, we invite all who have placed their trust in Jesus to do so, and we do so around a table because you will not be able to live the life of Jesus or following Jesus alone. And so we encourage everyone, even if you're wrestling with life in the way it has, where it has you now, if you're feeling shame, that is not the voice of God, that is the voice of the enemy, and that would keep you away from this table where Jesus says, I'm inviting you to the table to receive forgiveness. And so we want to invite you in a second to come to the table to receive the bread that is Jesus' body broken for the, us and his blood in that cup that represents the forgiveness of all our sins. Whew, he's washed us clean. And as we close our service, if there's something heavy sitting on you and you're like, Jimmy, I, I just there's too much here that I, I need to just confess some of this. I need to get this out. I've been hiding too long. Listen, you can go back into the prayer area. There'll be a couple of us back there ready to just pray for you, encourage you. Um, it doesn't even need to be back there. You could turn to each other if you need prayer. Let's do this together because we need each other. And to remind each other that you've been forgiven.